This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. All these drugs foster violence. That's, I think, one of the biggest themes was just this beautiful heartland ravished by meth. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. This next story centers on a terrible crime in rural Oklahoma in 1999. Two parents were murdered, and two teenage girls in the same trailer went missing. Author Jax Miller details this very twisty-turny story that has a surprise ending in her book, Hell in the Heartland. What do you think this story is about at its heart? I think it's about grief. I think it's about trauma. I think it's about misdirected anger, police corruption. There's a lot of things at play here. There's many facets to this story because you have so many people involved and I feel like everyone's coming at it from their own perspective and they have their own feelings towards it. Well, this starts in an unlikely place, rural Oklahoma in 1999. Let's just start from the beginning and tell the story chronologically. Who is the family at the center of this? Tell me about them. So the story revolves around the Freeman family. You have mother and father, Kathy and Danny Freeman, ages 38 and 40, respectively, and their 16-year-old daughter, Ashley Freeman. They live in Welch, Oklahoma, which is in the northeasternmost part of the state, bordering Missouri and Kansas. Very rural. They lived in a trailer home that was very far off from the road. You couldn't see your neighbor from there virtually. Hmm. On the night of December 29th, it was Ashley's 16th birthday and her best friend, Laura Bible also 16, she'd asked her parents if she could sleep over there for a second night in the row. Now, they'd been friends for, gosh, most of their lives, like since they were in diapers. So the mom was like, sure, yeah, you know, go on. You can, you know, have fun. And uh, and the girls, Ashley and Laura, they went out. They got a birthday cake. They went to Pizza Hut. And then they came home later that evening. They had birthday cake. Ashley's boyfriend, Jeremy, was also with them that night. And that was the last person to ever see them. The next morning between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m., this was December 30th, the neighbors saw a fire. They saw the Freeman trailer on fire. That was kind of the ground zero of everything was finding this trailer on fire at early morning. Let's set the scene a little bit for crime. Rural Oklahoma in the late 90s, would this have been, are we talking about drugs sort of in the area or is it just really idyllic, rural, nothing happening in this place at all? I think that was a very interesting time because that was when meth was really starting to be introduced. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we see lots of towns ravished in meth, but back then it was just starting to trickle in and the meth-related crime was uh, becoming more and more prevalent. So maybe not as much back then, but it was starting for sure. So the neighbor sees a fire. They obviously call the fire department. Is this a quick response? 
Yeah, it's actually a pretty quick response. And they do get the fire out rather quickly. I want to say 45 minutes, something along those lines. And after they extinguish the fire, they find a body. And uh, that body will transpire to be Kathy Freeman. At this point in time, nobody knows how she died. And furthermore, they don't know where her husband Danny is. And they don't know where the two girls are. They just have one body. So the first morning, everyone's scrambling very much. Laura Bible, the girl who was sleeping over, her parents, Jay and Lorene Bible, they're on the scene right away. You know, where is my child? Where where are the girls? Where's Danny? And they're waiting in the driveway for answers. Meanwhile, cops are scrambling, the firefighters, everyone's just scrambling around the crime scene. What's going on? How did she die? And uh, they're not getting many answers. But at around this time, they get a tip. According to the OSBI, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation agent, Steve Nutter, he says, we just got a a call. Danny has the girls. He's taken them hostage and he's not going to give them back until we give over the cop who shot his son. Oh, Kathy and Danny had a 17-year-old son who had died less than a year before this. He was shot and killed by police. They'd had dealings with Danny. They know Danny's a hothead. They says, well, let him cool off for a day, give it 24 hours, and then we'll start looking for the girls. Hold on. What kind of dealings had they had with Danny? Is this domestic violence stuff or is this him shooting guns in the middle of the night, neighbor complaint stuff? There, there were domestic violence issues. There were accusations that Danny had beat his son, Shane. There were accusations that he beat his wife. He was an abusive man. Hmm. Shane kind of went on the run. He committed a bunch of petty crimes. And then uh, he had a face-off with the Craig County Sheriff's Office. And there was a cop. It was his first day with the county. He shot him dead. Wow. So Kathy and Danny were up in arms about it. They said, our son was wrongfully shot. This was a wrongful shooting. Whether or not it was, I don't think we'll ever really know. Again, this could have been just misdirected grief. But either way, the Freemans, they wanted justice. And there was a lot of tit for tat between the Craig County Sheriff's Office and the Freemans. The police would shine lights on their home in the middle of the night. Danny would stalk the cops' kids. Like, it was a lot of back and forth. Wow. Yeah. And and that was going on for a year until this fire started. So they knew Danny because of Shane Freeman's death. And now they're running on the theory that Danny has the girls. Let him cool off. He's a hothead. I remember speaking to cops on the scene and they were like, we actually wondered if Danny was in the woods with a gun on us while we're, you know, trying to put out the fire. Wow. So the Bible parents, Lorene and Jay, you know, they they go in for questioning and they start asking the parents, you know, have you seen him in any drug dealings? Have you ever seen him with large amounts of cash? And they're like, what are you talking about? Just just find our kids. We don't give a damn about what Danny's into. They says, well, we're going to let him cool off and we'll see. Wait, did the Bibles believe that this was possible, that Danny would have taken his daughter and his daughter's best friend hostage, who they had known for her whole life? I think they were just kind of confused, like, what is going on? Is this true? And I think that they just wanted to know, you know, for sure, is this the case? Mm-hmm. They go the next morning. So this is the uh, second morning. They go back to the crime scene right before the break of day. And they were expecting SWAT. They were expecting the whole brigade to be there. And there's not a single person there. At the trailer. At the trailer, right. At this point, people have trampled the, the uh, crime scene. I mean, it's, it's a mess. And the sun comes up and within moments, moments, literally, they find a second body. In the trailer, is that right? In the trailer, yes. Where they found Kathy, she was face down on a waterbed, her waterbed, the master bedroom. Mm -hmm. Her feet, what were left of her feet, because they had been mostly burned off, were hanging off the bed. Mm -hmm. Danny's body was found face up in the doorway of that bedroom. 
but they knew it was him right away. See, everything from here up, everything from like the jaw up was missing. He had a previous surgery. He'd accidentally shot himself in the head while cleaning his gun a few years prior. Oh, my gosh. That's a story in and of itself. When he drove himself with a bullet in his brain to the hospital, got fed up with waiting, drove himself to a second hospital. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he was he, he was tough. Well, anyway, he, he had a surgery where they had to reconstruct his sinuses. So there was a lot of wiring in his hmm. face. So when the Bible saw him, even though the uh, top portion of his head was missing, they can tell by the wiring that this was Danny. And they could also see his genitalia, he, that, that it was a male. Mm-hmm. So they knew right away it was Danny. Mm-hmm. That was the same day they also learned that Kathy and Danny had both been shot to death before the fire was set. So now you have these parents both shot at close range. There goes the cop's theory that Danny has the girls because here he is dead on the floor. So where are the girls? Now, let me ask you, just from a logistics standpoint, to discover Kathy's body, didn't the police, didn't investigators have to walk over Danny if he's in the hallway? Yes. And in fact, that was um, a big part of it that the families complained about was Steve Nutter, the OSBI agent. He was the lead on the case. Uh, he was the only one wearing cowboy boots and they saw his cowboy boots on Danny's torso. Oh, gosh. When I spoke to Nutter years later, he's like, there was no body to see. He was reduced to ash. It was nothing. But that contradicts what we see in the autopsy reports and what oh, yeah. the Bible's witness. I mean, he was very much intact. He was missing a hand and he was missing the top portion of his But he was mostly very much intact, yeah. So he was tunnel focused on not somebody on the floor potentially. And, and maybe there was trash. I mean, was this a, a trashed out trailer? Yeah. And, you know, I, they said it could have been covered with debris. I know for Jay Bible, who was the first one to find the body, and Lorene was, you know, right near him, they had noticed Ashley's dog. She had a Rottweiler named Sissy. And Sissy was at Danny's body. And <sighs> Jay Bible saw her whimpering. They also saw a big knot on the Rottweiler's head. So Jay finds Danny's body. Investigators had found Kathy's body on the waterbed. Now they are saying, just without an autopsy, are they at first blush saying, must have been an accidental fire and we don't know what happened to the two girls? What are they thinking this scene is saying at this point now that there are two bodies and their suspect of less than 24 hours is dead? Well, I think one of the first things that they must have looked into was, was this a murder-suicide? No, yeah. Which they figured it wasn't because there wasn't a firearm found near Danny. So they ruled that out. And, you know, just based on the positioning of where they were shot. And they were shot with shotguns, mind you. So if we jump to the autopsy, they were shot. Yes, Kathy was shot in the back of the head. And Danny was shot under his chin, under his third molar. So kind of on the side of his jaw. And then from that point on, The Bibles were like, listen, you missed a body, you know, speaking of law enforcement, you missed the body, you had your chance, now it's our turn. Hmm. So everyone in the community came to help. And what they had was they had like this assembly line of sorts going down this long driveway and they were sifting through the ashes. Oh gosh. People came and, and hung out in the back of their pickup trucks. People came to hand out sandwiches and the families were going around looking for evidence and putting evidence markers down and then calling the police to come over and collect it. And law enforcement's letting this happen. Oh, my God. They're not, you know, saying, you guys can't be on the crime scene. So now you have civilians trampling this crime scene literally in the house. And if you have an investigator that can't even identify a body and is stepping on a body, can you imagine any material that was not recognized by these lay people being stepped on? Man, what a contaminated crime scene. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And One of the things that they found early on, but this did not come into play for many years later, was they found an insurance card. There was a private investigator on the scene. His name was Tom. 
And Tom finds this insurance card and he brings it over to the to the state agent saying, guys, this might be something, it might be nothing, but it's it's peculiar. I don't know why it's here at the end of the driveway, but there's an insurance card. And the state agency, and I think at this point they were a bit red in the face because they'd missed a body. I think, you know, they says, turn that around and don't you come back to us or I'm going to have your private investigation license revoked or whatever. Like they didn't even have that power. It was just, you know, a threat, but like, they were like, don't come at me. You know, don't, don't come here with your evidence. Let us handle it. But that might've been to save for further embarrassment. So we've got two people dead with shotgun wounds everywhere. And you've got still two missing girls. One is their biological daughter and the other one is the girl's best friend. And the Bibles, of course, are very alarmed because you've got the authority figures in the house where their daughter was staying are now dead and the girls are missing. So so I'll just back up for one second because I know you asked this. Another thing they were looking into was, did the girls do this? Did Ashley and Laura kill really? the parents? Yes, that was something that, that they looked into early on. Wow. What is the next step? Is the Oklahoma Bureau of the FBI involved at this point? So at first, the Craig County Sheriff's Office, they were the first to respond on the scene as far as law enforcement. But because of the background with Shane, they were like, listen, we have too much bad blood with this family. Oh, yeah. We're going to call in the state agency. So they called in the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, the OSBI. And so Steve Nutter was the lead on the case. Uh, the feds were never called in. They came in briefly for a search here and there, but they were never, you know, actively investigating. Okay. So the next step besides identifying that these two people are victims of homicide and clearly somebody set this place on fire, did they find an accelerant anywhere Well, see, and here's another thing is that there was no official report. So a lot of it was word of mouth. They had a retired fire marshal show up. He knew the Bibles and he was like, yeah, I can see an accelerant. It started at the fireplace, which was, you know, when you walked in, it was right to the left. Mm -hmm. It circled around this table here, but it was not officialized. It was word of mouth. But that is what people believe happened was, yes, there was some kind of accelerant, like a gasoline accelerant. The Sheriff's Department has recused themselves from this case, and it's the OSBI, but the OSBI has really botched this so far right? because they've allowed lay people to tromp all over the scene. Where do they go from there once they've established that Danny and Kathy are murder victims? There's the first of many lulls in this case. There really wasn't much going on. Not to say that they weren't actively investigating. I don't know because I wasn't there. But I know that the families weren't hearing much unless they called to see what's up. Now, for example, I know on that third day, maybe the fourth day, they failed to put the girls into the uh, missing persons database. So Lorene did that herself. What? She was the one who made Ashley's grandmother come down and get a DNA test. So a lot of this is like the family's own investigating. They're the ones knocking on doors. They're the ones doing the investigations. And the sheriff's office is kind of backed off from this. The OSBI, they're over in Tulsa and they're distant. And so um, from there, it's really their own investigation. And very quickly, they start getting tips looking into meth-related activity. Did the Bibles offer a reward and was there just an established tip line that came out? Uh, yes, the, the family raised their own reward. They had a potluck dinner oh. and it was the community members who raised this $50,000 reward, which is still in place. Wow. Okay. So they are getting tips in and now it seems like they're focusing on some, what is it, drug dealers or traffickers or something related to the now burgeoning meth industry that might be coming into Oklahoma? There were a lot of rumors of a New Year's Eve party that the girls were taking to a home where they were raped and shot up with meth and murdered (sighs) and that it was videotaped. And so the Bibles really 
started looking at, at this theory and it brought them to a town called Wyandotte. And Wyandotte is very, there are a lot of movers and shakers in Wyandotte as far as the meth world. But there were rumors early on and they chased every single lead down the family did. There were several searches on some meth properties. Then there was a confession of a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells. We know that name. We've had an author who wrote about him quite a bit on the show. Right. Yeah, and he was a prolific serial killer. And these two young girls would have fit his demographic. I know that investigators in Oklahoma went down there and they got him out of prison for a day. I think he was on death row. I think they got him out of death row for a day. But he eventually said that he just wanted a cheeseburger. So, you know, he kind of led them on this goose chase. It, it ended up with nothing. And then, you know, they're chasing these lower to the ground leads. And the biggest one they get is Jeremy Jones. Jeremy Jones will be their biggest break for several years. Now, tell me about Jeremy Jones and how he could have possibly been related to these two young women or to the Freeman family in general. So Jeremy Jones was arrested in, in Mobile, Alabama on an unrelated murder. That was the murder of Lisa Nichols. She was shot to death and her trailer burned, very similar to the MO scene with the Freeman family. But what made this very interesting was that Jeremy Jones came from Miami, Oklahoma, which is very close to Welch. Mm-hmm. They start looking back at the night of the murders and they can pinpoint that Jeremy Jones was in the area. That night, Jeremy Jones, he was getting high at a, at a nearby motel. And like, this is a really nasty, shady motel. And he was doing mess with some guy named Cowboy. Cowboy went to go kick his ass because he was annoying him. And then Jeremy got arrested and Jeremy was talking all kinds of nonsense, like, Cowboy's going to kill me. They're out to get me. The shadows are out to get me. You know, he does an overnighter in jail for like a drunken disorder, like something along those lines. Depending on who you believe with when Kathy and Danny were killed, because there is a lot of question about the exact time of death. But eventually he goes on the run. He assumes a, a false identity and uh, he is accused of killing several people, but he's only ever convicted of killing Lisa Nichols. So he's uh, currently on death row in Alabama. So what is the connection? Just that he's in the area and he can't uh, account for his whereabouts during the time frame of when they think these girls went missing? The interrogations were very, he was fed a lot of information. And what he would tell me years later, and I'm inclined to believe this, is that, you know, listen, they were offering him more phone time and better things in prison. So he was like, I I would tell him whatever they want. You know, I just wanted to talk to my girlfriend. Wow. But one of the accounts he said, and and he gave varying accounts and he couldn't get it right. He said he shot him with a handgun. Then it was a shotgun. Then he killed the girls here. Then he killed the girls there, blah, blah, blah. He couldn't get his story straight, but he kind of had this this version where he knew a guy that Danny Freeman might have owed him money for, and so he went and killed him, but he was confusing it with another man named Danny, who was also killed in the area, also shot to death, and his trailer burned down on a waterbed. Very similar crimes. What? Two similar crimes in rural Oklahoma in this area? It was another couple, yeah, shot to death in their waterbed, and they were very into meth, these two, Danny and Doris. Yeah, it was very similar. And Jeremy actually had more connections to that one. That one remains unsolved today. So does the OSBI think that these two waterbed murders are connected? How can they say definitively we don't think so? There were similarities to Danny and Kathy's death and Danny and Doris's death, but 
when they were investigating Danny and Doris's death, it was a different group of people. It was a different list of suspects. Okay. They did have a strong suspect and he he died, um, I believe, of natural causes during the course of their investigation. But it, yeah, it just it didn't look like the same. Okay. So what is the next big break? Because it sounds like the Bibles are very frustrated. They're not getting a whole lot of help from the OSBI. It doesn't sound like there was a ton of media attention, was there? I'm just so surprised with two missing girls that there wasn't a huge amount of pressure from big cities and people kind of coming in and really wanting to add publicity. You know, that was what what really attracted me to this story, too, was like, how is this not out there? Yeah. So Jeremy Jones on death row, he eventually recanted. So he was kind of taken off the table. And a lot lot of people still believe that he might have had something to do with it. I personally don't, just based on on my limited knowledge. I don't think he did. And and of course, what we know now. But uh, so there wasn't a break for a long time. But then there was a lot of things happening at once. There were new agents on the case, and they were a hell of a lot better than the former administration. So you have the district attorney's investigator, Gary Stansel, and OSBI agent Tammy Ferrari. And they're very much hands-on. They themselves were not happy with how the investigation was handled years ago. So they step in. This is around the time I'm getting to know the family. And then the family creates the Fine Laura Bible Facebook page. And that opens a door to a bunch of new tips. Okay. Soon people say, well, you need to talk to a guy named Charlie Kreider. So Charlie Kreider is from Chautauqua, Kansas. Now, in Welch, Oklahoma, it's right here. And then Chautauqua, Kansas is the next town north. So even though they're in different states, they're very close. You could, I mean, if if it wasn't so rural, you could nearly walk there, but you do have to do its drive around. But yeah, it's not far at all. And Charlie Kreider was one of the best friends of Danny Freeman, but he was convicted of murdering a woman in Chautauqua, Kansas, an older woman named Judith. And she was found in a creek, half naked, believed to have been strangled to death with a belt or something similar. Mm. So Charlie was convicted of that. I think it was second degree, something, you know, second degree murder, something along those lines. So he didn't do a lot of time. And by the time this push started coming, you know, with with, with the publicity and the Facebook page and the new agents, was the time he got out of prison. So when I started talking to him, he was still in prison. And then one day, you know, he was let out soon after. And a lot of people were like, well, maybe we should look at him. So he offers something new. Like, listen, me and Danny were into growing pot. We were excellent at it too. Like we were the guys to go to. So there was a lot of meth talk in the past and a lot about methamphetamines, but there was nothing to conclusively tie the Freemans to meth. There was never anything found at the scene to suggest that this is what, you know, it was. Uh, But now we have Charlie saying it was pot. And, you know, he got in a little bit of trouble. And shortly before his murder... This is according to Charlie Kreider, the convicted murderer from Chautauqua, Kansas. Mm -hmm. Three people showed up on his doorstep just days before the murder. And Danny took out a shotgun and said, get the hell off my property. Charlie never said who that was. We can only assume that they might have known something. So Charlie offers this new information, and that's the next biggest lead. So then there were searches at Charlie's former property. There was a well, and there was a basement, and there was whispers that, you know, these are small towns, there's lots of rumors, and there's no shortage of them. So, you know, after doing searches, they couldn't find the girls. 
But having the investigators now in Chautauqua, Kansas, opens this this can of worms. And now people in Chautauqua are starting to talk. And that's where the suspects, Pennington, Welch, and Busick come in because they were all from Chautauqua. Now, how are they connecting them to Charlie Kreiter to Danny Freeman? Is there a definitive connection? There's not a definitive connection. There's silly little connections. Like we know David Pennington and Charlie Kreider have been in school together since kindergarten, but that doesn't prove anything, right? It was just being in that location that people started to come forward. That was the real thing, was that all of a sudden we have this new group of people from Chautauqua saying, we know something, we know something, we know something. So eventually, and he has to come public, so um, in the affidavit he's known as R.E., R.E. comes forward and he's like, listen, my mom dated this guy named Phil Welch. Phil Welch had some Polaroid pictures of the girls from a New Year's Eve party. And the girls were duct taped. They were gagged. They were bound. And, you know, he bragged about the killings, as did two other men named David Pennington and Ronnie Busick. So now we have these three guys. They all have ties to Chautauqua. Busick and Pennington are from Chautauqua. They're raised in Chautauqua. And Welch came from Kansas, you know, more central Kansas, and he was a big time meth cook. He was a very frightening individual. He had this group of followers, borderline cultish. It probably wasn't big enough to be a cult, but he was very religious, but not in a healthy way, much more in the fanatical way. And most of it was driven by meth, of course. He thought he was divine. Hmm. And he had these followers, you know, Pennington and Welch were more like scragglers, just, you know, they were there for the meth. Now, all of them had history of beating their women. Welch especially was very, very horrible to his wives and children. He was really a dangerous, dangerous guy. And there were always rumors that he'd killed many people. I personally wouldn't be surprised one bit. So are police, the OSBI, then making a beeline to Kansas to have a discussion with these three men, plus Charlie Kreiter, about all of this new information? And where are we in time if the girls have been missing since December 30th of 1999? So this all comes to a head in early 2018. Now, that they get the names around 2017. Now, around this time, miraculously, the Craig County Sheriff's Office finds a crate of evidence that's been lost since 1999, and inside is Phil Welch's name. And then this private investigator, Tom, comes forward. Do you remember I told you they found the insurance card at the crime scene? Well, that has Phil Welch's girlfriend's name on it. So all these things, had they followed up on their card, there's a very strong possibility they could have found the girls. Now, what we know now is that the girls were kept alive for two weeks. Oh, my gosh. So now we really understand what's happening here. And the Bibles have been tortured for almost 20 years. Yeah, 20 years almost. Wow. So after R.E. comes forward saying, I think Phil Welch, and they start looking at the Phil Welch, and they start talking to his girlfriend and his family, then people are starting to talk. Yeah, we know Phil Welch killed those girls. We, You know, we knew that he killed those parents. And so did Pennington and Busick. So word gets around very quickly. And then it's like one tip after another. So the new agents on the case, Stancil and Ferrari, they, you know, kind of hit the ground running with this information. And in 2018, they say, yes, we believe that these three men are the ones responsible for the murders. Now, Phil Welch had died of ALS in 2007 Hmm. and Pennington died in 2015. So they just missed him. He had COPD, you know, emphysema. Mm -hmm. So only Busick was left. And Busick is like this 
bumbling scraggler. He had been shot in the head, so he had some form of brain damage. You couple that with years of methamphetamine use, he's very hard to get anything out of. Are they connecting a gun? Who has the shotgun? Never found. But do you remember when I said that the locals were all on the crime scene looking for things? They found all the guns and they put them out on the lawn for cops to pick them up. Cops never picked them up. We don't know who has those guns or if any of them were used. We're not sure. Based on what Rodney is saying or all of the information that investigators are pulling together, what do we know happens. These three guys go to the trailer that night and what transpires aside from, of course, pulling out a shotgun and killing this couple? So a lot of what we know is from Ronnie's testimony. And Ronnie, you know, he's he's funny because we don't know if he's really conniving or if he's really just, you know, because he says, now they handed him a deal on a silver platter. You tell us where the girls are, you'll virtually walk. And he says, he says they're here. And I think he believed it. And, you know, I I can't see why he wouldn't have given up the girls. And I wonder if he really knows, you know, I mean, I, Phil Welch was the head honcho in this. Now, what I think happened, and there might be people with other opinions, but um, I think the more common theory is this. We learned after the arrest that Phil Welch lived less than a mile from the Freemans. Hmm. And it was so wild because I'd passed this home a million times and like, Never knew that this little shack over here was his house. No one knew it. A lot of people think Danny might have been into meth. I'm not sure. There was never any evidence to say that. I do think he was into pot. I think he was into growing pot. And I think there was some kind of deal. Now, whether or not he owed them pot or owed them money or a drug deal gone bad, I don't know. What we do know from the autopsy reports is right before Danny died, his collarbone was broken. And I think Danny answered the door. I think he heard that dog. I think that dog was barking. Sissy. He got up armed because, you know, Danny wasn't taking no shit. And I think Phil was the same way. He wasn't taking no shit. And I think they broke his collarbone with the gun. I think that that's why Sissy had a big bump on her head. They hit her with the butt of the gun. Yeah. They shot Danny. Kathy was running across the bed because right at the other side of the bed was a was a shotgun. She knew where it was. I think she was going for that shotgun to defend herself. And they got her in the back of the head. Oof. Again, a lot of variations, but according to Ronnie, and and this is what I believe, I think they didn't know the girls were there. And they started to leave, and then the dog started barking and gave the girls up. They had been hiding in the pasture. They had escaped the fire, and they were hiding in the grass, and one of them poked their heads up, and they saw it. And then they corralled the girls. Is that what Rodney says happened, is that they spotted the girls after they had escaped? Oh, boy. Yes. And, and, and that's what I believe. And I, I think it's likely maybe Sissy gave them up or, you know, I know Ronnie said that it was the light of the fire. But from what we know, it was Welch who pulled the trigger and Pennington and Busick set the fire or maybe just Pennington set the fire. We're not sure. So then they take the girls. Now, there was a witness that night who saw a car with men in the front seat and the girls in the back seat racing away. They made eye contact with Laura it really fit what happened that night, that the girls took them back to Pitcher, Oklahoma. Now, I didn't get into this. Pitcher, Oklahoma is a is a ghost town now, but it was a big lead mining town full of literally thousands of square miles and underground freeways and highways, like massive tunnels for lead mining. It was one of the biggest, I think like 90% of the ammunition in World War II came from Pitcher, Oklahoma. I mean, it was huge. Hmm. And now there's no one there. But that's where Phil lived. And that's where he cooked meth. So we think that they took the girls back to that trailer, Phil Welch's trailer. They held them down. They gang raped them. They shot them with meth. According to RE, they strangled them to death. Wow. And we don't know that for certain because the bodies have never been found. 
Ronnie, he he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, which is nothing for him. He's spent most of his life in prison anyway for petty and drug stuff. But um, yeah, he was convicted. And uh, Lorene Bible gave a powerful witness impact statement. I was very honored. I was in the court with them when she looked him in the eye and said, I forgive you. And she wrote this letter about how she forgives the man who helped kill her daughter. It was so powerful. It was so, so powerful. And Rodney is not able or not willing to give the location of where the girls are? Correct. I, I don't I don't even think he knows. You think he was so high that he can't? I just don't think he was there for it. I think he was probably there for the assaults. I think he was there for the party part. But, you know, when Phil Welch got rid of the bodies, I'm not, I'm not sure anyone was there for it. So Jay and Lorene Bible believe everything essentially that Rodney says. They believe that version, the version that you just told. They're the most open-minded. They're like, we're not going to believe anything till we, you know, know for certain. You know, I think that they've heard so many varying things over the years that they've kind of learned not to focus on one thing, you know, not to settle on one theory. But, you know, I know that for them, these killers being named didn't really offer much closure. You know, they're they're not going to be satisfied until those girls are found. That's their their number one mission in life. And you said that there is still a $50,000 reward offered for the location of where their bodies are? Yes, yes. And I know they're actively looking. I know that they keep chasing tips. And, you know, they've been looking in Chautauqua. They've been looking. I know um, Pitcher is a popular place to look because uh, it's very possible that the girls were disposed of in a mine. And if that's the case, you might never find them because they're too hazardous to access. What does the OSBI say about all of this? Are they involved at this point at all? Yes. Tammy Ferrari, the OSBI agent, and Gary Stansel, who's the DA's investigators, they're very into this. And I know they're, they're working side by side, and really, they, they work very hard. What about the Freeman's family? Is there anyone, brothers or uncles or anybody, parents, grandparents, who are able to represent their side in these witness impact statements at Busick's trial? Yeah, you have to understand, you know, they came to this from a very different point of view than the Bibles. The Bibles were very set out on finding where are the girls. And I think the Freemans kind of took this angle why did this happen? Hmm. What caused this? So they were very focused on Shane, which we, we didn't get too much into, but, you know, they were very much into Shane and the police corruption angle, you know. Is that what you think? Do you think there's anything to that, that now let's go back several years, a couple of decades where you have the 17-year-old who seems to be a little bit of a troublemaker, kind of like his dad, and he is shot down by a deputy in rural Oklahoma And now, what, we have the Freemans who are saying, we think this is kind of one big Mm cover-up. Are they accusing the sheriff's office, who had recused itself, of covering up anything or being even involved with these four potential murders? I don't think that their suspicions are unwarranted. I think they have every every reason to suspect the things that they suspect. Whether or not they're substantiated, there's nothing yet. But... There was a lot of other factors in this, too. Like, um, you know, Kathy Freeman's best friend spoke outwardly about the cops having something to do with it. And then she was murdered oh my gosh. days later, you know. And, you know, so, like, there was a lot of, like, like, weird things. So I totally understand where the Freemans are coming from and why they believe this. Now, when Shane was shot and killed, there was the question, you know, was he armed? Because that was the official stance, was that he pulled a gun on this cop. The cop shot him dead. The Freeman says there was no gun. Or could this have been a suicide by cop? Or could this have been a justified shooting? 
You know, none of us were there. We don't know. They don't know. Yeah. But what we do know is that the Freeman family were pissed off one way or another, and they wanted to file a wrongful death suit against the Craig County Sheriff's Office. They had one year to do so. Less than a week before that window expired, they were murdered. Wow. So it does lend to a lot of conspiracy theories, but I don't think that they're that they're not merited. I think, you know, I think whether or not they're substantiated is a different story, but I don't think it's, you know, unreasonable to to ask yourself, was there something involved like that here? There's an awful lot of death happening. I mean, you're talking about witnesses who are dying of natural causes. You're talking about witnesses and people who were involved, you know, Kathy's best friend and this guy, Cowboy, who were murdered in an unnatural way. I mean, this is a, there's a lot happening in this story, which takes place in a tiny little area in rural Oklahoma. This just seems improbable to me that there's not a lot of connections happening between these cases. But you're right. I mean, when people die, what are you going to do? I mean, you just have Rodney left. It goes back to one of the first questions you asked, like, what are the themes of this story? And I think that this is small town America ravished with meth and the drug epidemic in this country. This is a small town that could be beautiful. And 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 there are such beautiful parts. I mean, you know, dripping sunsets and, and vast prairies. It's It's a beautiful place. But when you have the failing of economies, like with what we saw with this lead town and we have poverty, drugs come in. Were the Bibles, were they appreciative of your book and of the CNN special? Because, you know, this is shining a light on a case that seems to have been forgotten from 1999. Yeah, I, I think that they were appreciative of it. Um, I know I was very appreciative of it. And I really formed a lot of new friendships. You know, I remember I was actually in Oklahoma when the show aired. I remember Jay, you know, just like pulling me close and crying and holding, saying that that was like the best Hmm. version of the story. I think it was like the most told and in-depth version. I don't think that they were surprised with anything in the book. And I know a lot of writers don't agree with this. I didn't let one sentence not go by the families. I said, Hmm. how was this chapter? How was this? And I, I, you know, because I want to be out for accuracy and I'm trying to tell their story. So I wanted it to be accurate. So they knew what was going to be published. It wasn't a surprise. I've been very blessed to have them in my life. You know, even still, we're we're all very close even now. You know, right now I'm planning a cruise with some of the family. Wow. (laughs) It's a blessing. You know, it's not even related to work. We're just, we just became very close friends. Well, when people ask me why my chosen genre and concentration in journalism is crime, I think that exactly what you're saying, that example is why it is something that I think is universally understood, the fear that you're going to lose your child or your parent. It's something that can't be controlled, that can't be cured by going to the doctor, taking medicine. There's just a feeling of being ripped away and that enduring fear. And so I think when you have someone like you who is saying, let me help in some way, regardless of your, you know, this is your job, you're making money, you're selling a book, but there are other ways to sell books and you're doing this to, you know, really help move this story forward. So I can see why they would feel close to you. And I know that there's always an ongoing debate as a journalist of how close do you allow yourselves to get? And I think the more and more, the older I get, the more that I see my contemporaries saying, we do feel comfortable being closer to sources now because we're feeling the pain that they feel. And it sounds like that's sort of what category you've fallen into. 
a lot of people don't realize I had my start in fiction. I was a fiction writer before this, and I, I did well with fiction. I was living in Ireland when I decided to write this story, so I kind of came back to America from Ireland just to write this. But, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I think I was very naive going into it, and I, I made plenty of mistakes, and there are mistakes, I think, that a lot of people in the true crime community do make. You know, I think it's easy to become unfocused at why you're there and what what you really want to do. And for me, working on the story was such a learning experience because it showed me what I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be that person who just wants to write a book and take the money and run. And I didn't want to be this person who just makes them rip open their worst times of their lives and run off. I really feel like in my heart, I really just wanted to help them have a voice. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.